would be nice. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and be glad to give you one. You can take your Bibles or devices and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. A couple of things I want to mention to you before we get started. Number one, next Sunday we will be in daylight savings time, which means what? You're all going to be late. In the fall, we don't care. We don't tell you because then you're early and, and that's cool. You get here on time. But if you don't set your clocks ahead like Saturday night when you go to bed, then you will be late next Sunday because you will be you spring, fall. That's the only way I can remember it. So next Saturday night when you go to bed, just set them all forward and you'll be good. What time does church start, by the way? What? Okay. By a show of hands. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't embarrass you. How many were here at 1050 today? Oh, some of you are lying. (laughs) 1050. All right. uh, There's a couple things I do want to quickly mention to you, and then we will jump in and hang on. If you want your child to play baseball, softball, t-ball, coach pitch, whatever it might be, the the forms are out there at the Welcome Center. And the only reason I'm mentioning it is it's time-sensitive. If you want them to play uh, baseball, softball, whatever, need to get them signed up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, basically, we got till the 25th of this month, and we had to make decisions. So, the form, the, sign, the forms are out there on the Welcome Center. Don't wait till April and say, "Oh, by the way, I want my child to play," because then it'll be too late. So we will try to, but you just never know. So we need to know what we got. So if you're interested, take care of that. Uh, get the form, if nothing else, and get it turned in. Also, Easter Sunday, which is, uh, God has a sense of humor, Easter Sunday is on April Fool's Day this year. So, no telling what we will do, but we will have two services, so there'll be one, and we'll be talking about more about that as we get closer, but just so you remember, on April 1st, there'll be like 9, 9.15, I better tell you 8.30 so you'll be here on time, but that's a different story, probably 9, and then uh, uh, this regular one at 10.50, that's on uh, April Fool's Day, Sunday the 1st. Also, if you're available, there's something cool that goes on in our community every um, year. The Belmont Missionary Baptist Church has a Monday, Thursday service, and different pastors come in from different places and share the last words of Christ on the cross, and I get to do it every year. The pastor called me last night, and it's, uh, it's one of the highlights of my year, just different churches in town get to come together there at their church, and they're sweet people. And he, he said, are you going to do it this year? I said, man, I, I, I wouldn't miss it. It's the highlight of my year, one of my, the highlights of my year. So uh, I get to be one of the, the pastors that speaks, and I'm doing it is finished, Jesus' words. We said it is finished this year. So um, anyway, that's on Monday, Thursday, the 29th. It's at 7 o'clock at the missionary Belmont Missionary Baptist Church right here in town. All right, now back from the commercials, turn to Acts chapter 1. If you'll notice on your handout, kind of set the, the text, the context, and transition where we are. If you'll take your handout, and as again, as we're looking at our series in Acts, you'll notice what's the title of today's message. 
Everybody at once. Okay, what's the title of the very top today's message? Come on, work with me. If some of y'all are grown, I'm going to have to go to the 12-year-olds, the 13-year-olds here on the front row. All right, it's the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, the birthday of the church. I don't want to have to pull it. I feel like I'm a dentist here. Now, come on, work with me. All right, it's the birthday of the church. Acts chapter 2 is an incredible moment in time. What I want to do as we get ready to look at the birthday of the church and our series in Acts about the great commission continuing, and Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of me, and I am with you Always. So I want to start in verse 12 of chapter 1. This is kind of where we left off last week. If you, and you know, when, it, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter verse designations. It was just, in this particular case, Luke wrote a historical account of the early birth of the church and the early age of the church. So he just wrote that. If you read an epistle, Pick one, Galatians, Ephesians, pick, a, pick an epistle. As you read those letters, they weren't broken down in chapters 1, 2, 3, on and on. It just simply wrote a letter like you would write a letter in paragraph form. Well, this is an historical account, again, of the birth of the church. And, and as the work of Jesus Christ continued, the Great Commission continues in the church. And by the and it's, that's what's so exciting to me to study it for us, that that continues to this very day. We are... The church, we're going to look at the birthday of the church, and here we are, 2,000 plus years later, we still get to celebrate the great birth of the church, and Pentecost was part of that season of Passover, which we celebrate this time of year, leading up to Easter, the resurrection, which was the end of Passover, leading to Pentecost, we're going to talk about all of that over the next few weeks. So, we left off last week in verse 12, let's start there, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So they've been at the Mount of Olives, and this, again, historical account. Important to keep remembering what type of literature are you reading. This is an historical account of the early church. Jesus has just ascended. It's where we left off last week. He's left the earth. He's physically ascended into the heavens, and they watched him go. And they are distraught. In a very real sense. But notice the partnership that they have together as they begin to do what Jesus wants them to do. So the Mount of Olives is just outside Jerusalem. It's a very special mountain, both the Jews and the Christians. It's where Passion Week began. Jesus was at the Mount of Olives and he said, let's go down now to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday leading up to the crucifixion and in the resurrection the following Sunday. Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed into the hands of sinners of where they would take him and crucify him, is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And if you as an adult have never been to Israel, here's what you need to do. It's not cheap. You're not going to just write a check probably and go. It's expensive. But here's what you need to do. You need to say to your family, don't buy me any more presents. Ever again. You're thinking, shut up, man. What are you doing? Just give me money. Whatever you're going to spend on my present. Set you up an account for your Israel trip. Set it aside. Before you know it, you'll have the money. And if you can work it out in your schedule, you need to go to Israel one time in your life. 
you get to go. I went in January of 1990, a long time ago, and I can still visualize and say when I'm reading, like right now, read about the Mount of Olives. You go there, you stand there. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane right now that was there over 2,000 years ago. There's a good chance Jesus prayed under that same tree. Now, it doesn't, again, you're not, nothing mystical is going to happen. But what it does, it begins to make the Bible, you get to go to the Dead Sea. You get, you get to go to, to uh, the Sea of Galilee. We baptize people in the Jordan River. You just, it's, it's just an amazing experience for believers because then as you read the New Testament in particular, but even a lot of things in the Old Testament, you, begin, you get to go to Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, just some, a, a Masada where, the, where in AD 70, as Rome just leveled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, the zealots went up to Masada and for two and a half years, they re- 2,000 of them resisted the Romans. Finally, the Romans uh, built a, a wall, a ramp up to the top of Masada. It's like a big mesa. At the, it's at the Dead Sea. It's not far from Qumran. And you go up there, and they survived. They had an aqueduct, and they had water, and they survived for a couple of years. And finally, the Romans got up there, and they, all the zealots committed suicide. But you get to go to the top of Masada, history. You look down. And the stones where the Romans encamped in AD 70 are still there. It, it's just, I get chills just thinking about it. And you get to go to the Holocaust Museum and you see what a man like Adolf Hitler, how Satan could use one man and do such horrible things to human beings, particularly focused on the Jews. And you get, to, again, history. My father fought in that war. And you get to see it for yourself. But, but if nothing else, what it does for you, it just makes the Bible come alive for you as you read it, you study it, and you realize that's history. That's history. That's not just something 40 different guys over 1,500 years made up, and now we call it our Bible, that it's history, that it's true. So as you read it, it just deepens your faith. Okay, that commercial's over as well. So there at the Mount of Olives, it's a very special place. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us, Matthew 24 and other places, when Jesus comes back at the second coming, where is he coming to? Mount of Olives. And so it's a very special place. It is literally there. So verse 12, they, the apostles, the followers of Christ, they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So they're together as a group. Jesus has left. They're all Jewish. Keep that in mind, this point in Acts. They're all Jewish. So their mind, in their mindset, they wanted the Messiah to set up his kingdom on earth and, and rock on. He's gone. He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I want you to go into all the world, make disciples of me. They're not sure exactly what to do. Now what? Well, I just want you to notice verse 14. Look at their single-minded purpose in verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They continued. They were, the literal translation in, in Greek is they were persistent with one accord. They were unified. They had one purpose. Six times in the book of Acts, you'll see this phrase. They continued with one accord. Their single-minded purpose. We need to do what Jesus told us to do. Just a little note so that you'll see it. Context. Jesus is gone. The Holy Spirit is coming, and Jesus has told them, you wait the Holy Spirit comes, you shall receive power. We talked about that last week. But I want you to notice verse 14 again. They all continued with one accord, united in purpose, single-minded focus, 
and supplication in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. One of the things that's unique about the church, especially at this moment in time, is they recognize the value of women. Other, the rest of society did not. The Jews as a group did not. Certainly the Romans didn't, but the church did. Jesus made it clear. When Jesus rose from the dead, who were the first people that saw him? Women. Not an accident. Not at all. And as Paul describes the church, it's a very radical description. It says, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. They, they were of value, great value. Totally different, totally radical. The church was unique. So they got a single-minded purpose. Now notice verse 14 one more time. They continued with one accord in prayer. In prayer. This is really important. Because for the majority of them, or the leadership of them, for the last three years, who have they spent all their time with? Jesus. They literally sat and ate, walked, watched, listened to, and talked to the Son of God. God in the flesh. They've spent three years with him, seeing incredible stuff, hearing incredible stuff, watching things happen, listening to him, being taught by him, being, for lack of a better term, discipled by him, pardon the pun, to get them ready for him to go away. They're still confused. They've been able to talk to Jesus, asking questions. For example, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he uttered those words everybody has memorized. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Teaching them what prayer was all about. So now notice, Jesus has gone. They are to carry on. They've got the focus. They've got the purpose. And the one thing they continue to do consistently, continually, is to pray. Think about it. Why are they, why are they so focused on prayer at this point. they got no place else to turn. When do you get the most focused in your prayer life? When you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you got no other place to go. Now, should, it shouldn't be that way. We should be, as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. In all things, be thankful, both good and bad. Pray. Talk to your father. Understand, it's for your benefit. You're not doing it to help God out. He's omnipotent. You're doing it for your personal, spiritual growth and encouragement. And they desperately need it. They can't turn and say, Master, what about this? They can't turn and say, Rabbi, what about this? They can't turn and say, Jesus, what about this? But what they can do is say, Jesus, what do we need to do? What do you want us to do? What's your will for us? Remember, he taught them how to pray. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's what they need to seek. That's what God wants them to understand. Seek my will, not yours. So that's what, that's what they're doing. Jesus had told them in the upper room discourse, the last night he was with them, prior to being crucified, he said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, says it twice, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. The key to prayer for them and for us is to go to Jesus and pray in his name. Not, Lord, here's what I need you to do, now do it. That's not prayer. That's presumption. You're telling God what he needs to do. That's not what you do. You go to him and say, Lord, here are my needs. Lord, I trust you. Lord, what is your will for me? I'm going to pray in the name and the character and the person of who Jesus Christ is. I want to be what you, we as a group, the church there was praying, and for us individually and corporately. What is it you want for us, Lord? Now, we want to go do it. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. What's so cool about studying Acts? That was their Great Commission for them. What's our Great Commission? The exact same thing. Do you understand? This was the birth of the church. We're just a church a little older. Just a little older. 2,000 years. But with God, what does the Bible say about time with God? 1,000 years is what? A day and a day is... So God doesn't have any concept of time. He doesn't need time. He's outside time. He created time for us. He don't wear a watch. I do. He doesn't. He don't have to look at his phone and see what time it is. He is time. He created it for us. That's the beauty of understanding who your father is. He's sovereign over even time. He's already in tomorrow. When the very first, when we first got into the book of Acts, quoted that verse of Revelation where Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the one who is, who was, who is to come. I'm outside time. Ooh, it's cool. That's why, that's why you trust God, because of who he is. So that's what they're doing. They don't know what else to do. So they pray. That's a good thing. They're focused. They're praying, seeking God's will. Now, at this point, look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, this is the time of Pentecost. Normally, the population of Palestine was about, or Jerusalem was about 150,000. Around Pentecost, there were millions there because all they came to celebrate the Passover time. So Peter stands up. The population of all of Palestine at this time was somewhere between one and four million people. Now notice verse 15 again. This is what's so cool about studying history. This is not, even if you don't believe the Bible, what I'm about to tell you is absolute history. All you got to do is go read history. Throw the Bible away and read history. Notice verse 15. How many of them were there? We'll see if you can read. How many of them were there? About 120. Somewhere around what's in this room. About 120 of them literally changed the world. Literally changed the world. Even the Bible says they turned the world upside down. I don't care whether you believe the Bible or not, you can't deny what they did. It happened. Go back and study the fall of the Roman Empire. Go back and study the growth of the church. See what happened. It happened. Because this 120 people got on board when the Holy Spirit came. Remember Acts 1-8, you shall receive power, Jesus said, when what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are now, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
In their mind, that would have been the Roman Empire. For us, it's the world. That same commission is on our lives today. That same call to go into all the world. In Luke chapter 24, the Bible says this. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them, carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. That's how the book of Luke ends, the gospel account. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Luke writes the gospel account of the life of Christ on earth. That's the end, the ascension. They left went back together in and around the temple. They were one accord seeking, Lord, what you want us to do? The gospel ends. Then Luke writes the book of Acts to say, now Jesus has gone. Here's what Jesus is going to do. So now, now notice verse 16. They've got the focus. They're praying. Notice what they do in verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. Remember, they're all Jewish, so Scripture to them would be what you and I call the Old Testament. That was their Scriptures. This Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, when he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And it goes on to talk about what Judas did in betraying Jesus. What happened to Judas was fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. So notice, very important, I just want you to see the principle Jesus is gone. They've been commissioned to go out and tell the world about Jesus, spread the gospel, make disciples of him. And he said, I'll be with you always. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to be in you, with you, and you will do greater things than I've done. All that from the upper room discourse. Then he had said, you wait at Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing. But in the interim, while they wait, they're praying. They're in the word of God. They're seeking to do what God wanted them to do. Now, fast forward to March 4th, 2018. Same commission on our lives. What is it that God wants us to do to go into all the world and make disciples of him? We need to be people of prayer with a single-minded focus who study the scriptures. See that? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. That's why intensive, consistent, systematic Bible study is an absolute priority for every believer for me, for you, for every believer who wants to be part of a local body, who wants to be what God wants us to be, to go into the world and fulfill the Great Commission, we have to be people of Scripture. Not people of what makes me feel good, people of what I want, but people of Scripture. I, had, I was talking to my doctor this week, went for my annual physical, and he's a believer, and great guy, and we end up, I'm usually there about an hour, and we end up for like 30, 45 minutes, just, just debating theology. It's really, and then, then he'll say, how you feel? And I'll say, I feel all right. And he goes, okay, get out of here. Now, I got other people to see. But as we're in the process of talking about theology, he said, do you, how do, he says, how do you set up your sermons? Do you study a book? Do you do topical studies? What do you do? And I said, usually I will study a book for a period of time, and then we'll move on to another book systematically teach through, through something. He goes, yeah. The, he said, a lot of churches don't do that anymore, do they? And I said, no, they don't. And there's nothing wrong, obviously, with, with teaching on a principle of prayer or teaching on a topic. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's important because our, the point he was making that we discussed was it, it, 
the call in the life of a pastor is to preach the whole counsel of God, not just what, what makes you feel good. Not what you want to hear, but the whole counsel of God. Sometimes the whole counsel of God makes you feel guilty. The whole counsel of God might make you feel inadequate. You're not doing what God wants you to do. By the way, that's what it does for me. I don't know what it does for you, but that's what it does for me. When God convicts me that this, stop doing this, or start doing that, or be a better husband in this arena, be a better friend in this arena, be a better leader, whatever it might be. That's why it's incumbent that we have to be people of Scripture. They were praying people. They, they were focused. They were, they were still struggling, but they were praying, focused people of Scripture. So they go to the Scripture. Now look at verse 26. Not 26, excuse me. We found the right one. 24, excuse me. They prayed and they said, they're trying to replace Judas. We're not going to go through all of that. You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. And they had a standard. Somebody who could be an apostle to replace Judas had been around and seen Jesus from his baptism to his resurrection. So they're seeking, what I want you to notice in verse 24, is they're seeking God's will. They're not just deciding for themselves who this guy's going to be. Verse 25, show into verse 24. Show us who you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Don't get hung up on them shooting dice to pick Matthias. Some people struggle with that. That was a common way in the Old Testament for them to determine God's will. So it was something that they knew as Jews. God would use it. Here's the point. You don't want to miss it. You don't get hung up on side things. The point is, they searched scripture. They prayed. And whose will? They didn't just pick the guy that was popular. Who did they want to pick? God's man for the job. And the standard was that he'd be an eyewitness of the resurrection and that he had seen the ministry of Jesus. That's what an apostle was. They didn't just find the guy they liked the best who had a good jump shot. They looked for God's man to be on the team. They found God's man, and they proceeded. Okay, that's the intro. Now take your handout. Obviously, we ain't finishing the handout today. I think you probably figured that out. All right. So now you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, no transition. When this was written, there was no chapter 2, chapter 1. It just just flows. So now they've got... They're waiting what Jesus told them to do. For just a moment, flip back to chapter 1, verse 5. 1, 5. John truly baptized, Jesus is speaking. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth earth. So the setting now, they've left the Mount of Olives. They've gone back to Jerusalem. They're waiting for Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit to baptize slash fill them, to empower them to go fulfill the Great Commission. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. They're simply waiting. Now let's look at the church 
on the day of Pentecost. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I want you to notice just quickly, we mentioned it a moment ago, they left the Mount of Olives, they went back to Jerusalem, there's about 120 of them, they're one, they're unified. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, they're waiting. What does chapter 2, verse 1 tell you about them? They're, they're one, they're united. How many churches are just destroyed because people can't get along, can't stay focused, can't be okay with differences, make the primary thing the primary thing. The Great Commission, chapter 2, verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're going to get into that in great detail next week. Let's begin to look at this. And don't, again, don't get hung up on, oh, they're speaking in tongues. What does all that mean? We're going, we're going to talk about that. We're going, to, we're going to walk through that to make sure we're on the same page. Okay, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. That literally means in the original language, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. All right, what's the day of Pentecost? Well, this particular one in history, remember Acts is a book of history. This particular day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of the original day set up by God after the children of Israel came out of Egypt at the Exodus when God set up the Passover system, the Levitical priesthood, and all the festivals that they were to celebrate. What is Pentecost? It is a feast that was celebrated 50 days after Passover. It was also known as the Feast of Weeks. It it celebrated or it, it memorialized the giving of the law, the Mosaic laws, the Mosaic law, which was given 50 days after the Exodus. Pentecost literally means it's Latin for 50. So it's a period of time of weeks. Passover, which is what they had just celebrated, was about the life of Christ. The Bible, Paul tells us, Christ is our Passover. So at Passover, you had three festivals celebrating Salvation in Christ, justification, celebrating living in Christ, sanctification, and then celebrating rising to new life and going home in Christ. Justification, sanctification, glorification, which Paul writes about at great length in Romans and in other epistles. Passover was celebrated by the Jews, given by God to them in Exodus, after they came out of Egypt. Remember the last plague. When they were in Egypt, the final plague that God sent was the death angel, and the angel passed over the houses that had what on them? Blood. The death angel passed over the ones who, by faith and obedience, had put the blood on the door of their homes. They trusted God, and they were saved from death. That's what happened to you when you were born again. You trusted the blood of Jesus Christ to save you, and you were born again, and death passed over you. You will die physically, but Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me will never die. You live forever in Christ. That's Passover. And then the next festival was part of Passover. The next feast was unleavened bread. It began after, and by the way, Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Passover, and he was crucified on Thursday, rose again the next Sunday. Unleavened bread began the day after Passover, and it lasted seven days. 
And it was a picture of living the life. At Passover, you were born again. And unleavened bread, you're being sanctified. You're living. You're getting, leaven means sin. You're getting sin out of your life. You're cleaning up your life. And you're living day by day in the power of God, a life of unleavened. Get the sin out of your life. Passover takes care of the sin. Unleavened bread, you're cleaning it out. And then the next festival feast was first fruits. And that's a picture of the resurrection. It's the, it began at the unleavened bread. It was celebrated after unleavened bread. The Bible tells us Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the what? First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He rose from the dead so that when we die, we just go to sleep. Because what do you do when you go to sleep? You get up. You've been raised to new life in Christ because he's the first fruits. We get new life now, unleavened bread, but we've also been risen. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Paul said. We have eternal life. Heaven is ours. That's why he writes in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, death has no power in your life. And the grave has no sting for believers because when we die physically, we go home to paradise spiritually in new bodies. We live forever in paradise. That's why death for us it's the best day of our lives, the Bible says. So Pentecost was then celebrated at the end of the wheat harvest where they would come out, the priest would, would wave two, two loaves from the grain of a new harvest. I know it's a lot of detail, but it will help you in understanding this. So the, 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 this is so important, it's so cool. He would wave two loaves of, from the harvest, but they were loaves with leaven, not unleavened, but with leaven in them. Leaven always represented sin. Well, wait a minute. Why would they do that? Because they were celebrating the fact that we have leaven in our lives. We're sinners. But Jesus took care of that. So at Pentecost, we got the law, how to live for God, and we're accepted. The two loaves become one loaf in Jesus Christ. It's called the church. And even though we're a lump of dough. The sin problem is taken care of in Christ. And we're set free because he died and rose again. So it's the only Old Testament sacrifice that had leaven in it. It's a picture of sin. And the picture was, if I'm born again, I'm a saint. So are you. But you're also a sinner. But God takes care of that in Christ. So they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1 again, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is the great fulfillment of all that went on in the Old Testament, that all they'd ever known as Jews, this is the great fulfillment of it. The day of Pentecost had finally come. They're all together in one place waiting for Jesus' promise. In John chapter 10, Jesus had said these words. John 10, 1 Corinthians 12, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus said the following. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, speaking to Jews. Them also I must bring. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Jews didn't want to hear that. Jews wanted their Messiah to be for whom? Them. Overthrow the Romans. Get rid of the Gentiles. Set up the kingdom on earth. And Jesus said, no, I've got other sheep. Remember when he wanted to tell them the parable of the good man? It was a parable of the good Samaritan 
not the good Jew, not the good priest, not the good Levite, not, it was not the good anything. It, it was a Samaritan, which they looked at as half-breed dogs. Jesus said he was the good man, not the priest and the Levite in the story. It was the Samaritan. So now he's saying, I've got other sheep. 1 Corinthians 12, by one spirit, Paul writes, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, we, though many, are one bread. There's that idea of the lump, the loaves, one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Remember Jesus said, I am the bread of what? Life. It's for everybody. One of the things you notice as you read the writings of Paul, particularly he talks about the church. Just quoted him twice, and you see it over and over in the writings of Paul, is the idea of the word one. We're one. We're one. We're one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not, and then in 1 Corinthians, which was a very immature, fleshly church that struggled with doing what was right, and their biggest problem was they were dividing up into groups. You had a group over here, that said, I'm following Peter or Cephas. Got a group over here said, I'm following Apollos. And then you had the spiritual group in the middle that said, well, we're following Jesus or Christ. Truth was, none of them were following Christ. They were all following what they wanted. You think that happens at church? They just follow what I want. Sat and talked to my brother-in-law for about an hour yesterday about a struggle that they're having at their church. We got through the end of the conversation. Here's what I said to him. The biggest problem your church has is that your people are only interested in what they want. They're not interested in what God wants. Which is one of the problems with the church in America. Is that we've decided that it's all about what I want, what you want. We're not interested in what God wants. We're interested in what makes me feel good, what sounds good, what I like. When I should be on my knees saying, God, what do you want? What do you want? I want to do what you want me to do, not what somebody, and and I don't want to be selfish in it, Lord. I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. Jesus wanted these Jews to understand. I've got other sheep. They're called Gentiles. What do Jews think of Gentiles? I want nothing to do with them. They've always been a problem. The only reason they became a problem is because the Jews didn't handle it the way God told them to. Jesus said, no, no, my church will be one bread. One bread. Paul got it. What was really interesting is that it took a long time for Peter to get it. And Peter was the leader of the church. It took him a long time to get it. He was a bigot. He didn't want anything to do with Romans. I'm not going to eat with a Roman. God said, yeah, yeah, you are. And after he ate with them, he realized, oh, direct quote. I see now that God is no respecter of persons. Church could learn a lot. Again, talking to my brother-in-law yesterday, their biggest problem was they didn't want anybody to come in their church that didn't look like them, like different skin color. Uh-oh. I'd love to talk to a group like that. You know, sometimes you want to say things and you shouldn't say, you know. Like, do you realize that us lily white Caucasians, that when you looked at Jesus, he probably looked a whole lot more like an African-American than he did a white person. Where did he live? He lived in the Middle East. He lived in the desert. What do you think his skin was? What color do you think his skin was? Please. Man, we get so hung up on the wrong things. So here he says to them, 
They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now verse 2, Holy Spirit comes. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's about 120 of them. What's so cool is they're united, they're focused. We want to do what you want us to do, Lord. Show us. I love this. you got 120 people all managing to get united and focused. We mentioned it earlier. What did that 120 people do after they got united, focused, and they got the power of the Holy Spirit? What did they do? They changed the world. They weren't educated people, by and large. They were simple people like us. Not the intelligent, not the elite. Matter of fact, later on, you'll see it here, even in this event, they looked at him and said, these are ignorant Galileans. They're like, these are ignorant people from Memphis. Certain areas anyway. How could they be doing this? And you know how they could be doing it? Because they had what happened in verse 2. The Holy Spirit came just like Jesus said, and now they had the capacity to do what Jesus told them to do, and they weren't doing it in their own power. They were doing it in the power of Almighty God. By the way, that same Holy Spirit that filled that room on Pentecost is in this nasty old former grocery store right now. He'll be in your bedroom tonight. You'll be at your place of work tomorrow. It's going to be in your car when you leave the parking lot and you're talking about me. When you're having me for lunch, he'll be at the table. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And by the way, he knows everything. Uh, ooh. That's why you surrender to him. You trust him. You don't trust yourself. I had a guy yesterday, just yesterday, talking about that I've been doing this 35 years and and that their church was looking for a pastor and they couldn't find anybody with the right credentials. He goes, didn't you go to seminary? I said, no, I went to that great university over at Normal and Southern Seminary called Memphis State University back then. It's the only education I had. God called me to do this, so God empowered me to do it. All I had to do was say yes, trust him, and do it. By the way, I mentioned this last week. I don't care if you're 13 or you're my age, or older, if you're born again, God has put his hand on you. He's called you to be part of this great commission. And it should thrill you, excite you, motivate you to understand that God wants to use you, use us, even though we're ignorant Galileans. Just go do it. Just trust me. What did Jesus say? I want you to go do it. As you go, you will be witnesses to me, and I will be with you. How long? Always. So does that mean he's not here today? He's either here today or he's what? He's a liar. And if he's a liar, we're wasting our time because he's a sinner. If he's a sinner, he can't save us. We're wasting our time. Might as well get eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? But he isn't a liar. So when he said, I'll be with you always, what do you mean by that? I'm not real smart, but when he said, I'll be with you always, he meant, I'll be with you always. That's what it means. That's why it's so exciting for us. So the Holy Spirit comes in a unique way. Now notice, it comes as a sound. Suddenly, the word in verse 2 means a striking, memorable, unexpected moment. It's a great day in history. The word sound means it was a great explosion. I imagine they were, whoa, what? From above. An explosion from heaven, not north, south, east, or west. An explosion 
from heaven. Vertical, not horizontal. It's a sign. God's trying to get their attention. So notice, as of a rushing mighty wind. Does not mean it was wind itself. Notice, as a rushing mighty wind. Just an explosive sound like wind. Doesn't mean it necessarily was. The picture here is, and we're going to stop with this. What They're in the room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait, to get empowered, to go do what he wanted them to do. And suddenly, the room they're in, there's just an explosion of the power of God that they can't see. Please don't miss that. The invisible power of God filled that room. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So they're waiting for it. It comes, which give you a little tease for what happens next week. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2 again. Filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we'll talk next week about the manifestations, but here's what happened. They're in the room. They're praying. They're searching Scripture, and they're waiting for what Jesus promised he was going to do. And the room just explodes in sound, and they began to see signs of the presence of God. You can't see what the wind is doing. You can't see the wind, but what do you see? What the wind can do. You see the results. They were about to see them, and so was the whole world. So here's our point for today. They were ready. They were waiting for the power, and the power came. That same power, that same Holy Spirit, indwells the church today, fills us, and we have that same commission. Go and make disciples. I will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we... we, uh, Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives individually, corporately, that we are the body of Christ. We are the greatest institution of any kind you've ever put on the planet. It's the church. That Christ in us is changing the world for his glory. We thank you for being called, being saved, now being sent out to be part of that, we are blessed, Father. We are humbled. So for all of us here who are believers, Lord, you motivate us, excite us about our Savior to go out and share him. Maybe people who don't even understand what it really means, talk to them about it. Talk about history. Talk about who Jesus was leading up to Easter. So many people don't know. They just go to church at Easter. Why? Help us, Father, love them and share the gospel. Use us. And Lord, if there's a person seated here who's not a Christian, in this room right now is that same Holy Spirit that might touch them, convict them, say to them, you need Jesus to save you. Ask him to forgive you. He, he will. He will save you and give you life both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'll be down front.